summertime. It's almost over. Boy, that's, uh, it's been a tough couple weeks around here. So hot and muggy. But uh, many of you have been at the shore. We're glad you're coming back. And uh, we're going to be getting into the Word this morning and uh, turning in your Bibles. And so we're excited about praising the Lord. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us before His throne this morning. That was, uh, was great. Father, as we uh, open up your word, as we seek to know you more, help us, Father, to understand your way for us, to make choices, Lord, that would honor you because of the word of God embedded in our hearts and minds. That's truth that we can act on, and we thank you, Lord, for it, and for this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The label on the bottle said, <clears throat> blueberry, pomegranate, 100% juice, all natural. And uh, there was also this picture of this ripe pomegranate and all of these glistening seeds uh, rolling over these uh, blueberries that were big and fat and juicy. And then I read the ingredients. It said, <clears throat> filtered water, pear juice concentrate, apple juice concentrate. Grape juice concentrate. And I'm thinking the same thing you're thinking right now. Where's the blueberry and the pomegranate? Finally, I found them. They were fifth and seventh on the list of ingredients. By law, food ingredients are listed in descending order of weight. And so that means that the product that contains the, the greatest proportion of the first in, is the first ingredient on the list, and then each one successively after that farther down. So according to this list, this bottle of blueberry pomegranate was mostly water and other juices, with just enough blueberry and pomegranate to say so. <laughs> In the bottom corner of the front label, a small, easy-to-miss uh, telltale words were flavored juice blend with other natural ingredients. It was very enticing, you know. It was very colorful, clever labeling, all serving as decoys to sell me this diluted blueberry pomegranate flavored product disguised to look like something it really wasn't. We read, be filled with the Spirit. What if there was an ingredients label printed on me? Or you? Would Jesus be the main ingredient? And if not, how far down on the list would he be? Would my label accurately represent its contents? Or would I be falsely projecting a misleading outward appearance that would be mistaked for diluted ingredients? I may be very convincing on the outside, and I may sound like the real thing, but what if someone were to come to me, or you, looking just beneath the Christian label and found something else? Something Jesus-flavored, but not Jesus-filled. What fills you? What controls you? What drives you? 
What is underneath it all that directs your decisions every day that you are at the crossroads? We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians this summer, and these first three chapters, there's a lot of heavy doctrine, a lot of heavy theology of what it means to be Christian, who we are in Christ, and grace, and, and the cross, and redemption, and union in Christ, and all of that. And then we get to chapters four to six, and it becomes very highly practical. But understand that, that this is not a totally different message. It's all the same subject. Paul is showing us throughout the book as a whole what it means to be Christian. You know what it means to be Christian? It means to be theologically driven. That theology and doctrine and stuff about the Trinity and the cross and atonement and grace and redemption, all of those things in chapters 1 to 3 have an, have an effect and an impact how we live every area of our practical lives in chapters 4 to 6. And like Dave showed us last week, how the filling of the Holy Spirit and our resultant submissive heart following the example of Jesus impacts our marriages as Christians. And so now two more areas are laid out for us today <clears throat> in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, work and family. We've dealt with marriage, now we're going to deal with work and family. Let's look at this passage together with a simple outline. That Jesus is the driver in your work, verses 5 to 9. And Jesus is the driver in your family, verses 1 to 4, he ought to be. Asking the question, what fills you? What controls you? What drives you? Take your Bibles this morning that you brought, and you turn to Ephesians 6, 1 to 9. If you don't have your Bible, there's a Bible in the seat near you. A little white Bible, you can pick that up, and you turn to page 1082. 1082, or Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, we'll be reading it together. I'm going to read it out loud for us. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, that's the theology, the study of God, see. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing, see, here's the theology that makes the difference, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing, and again, here's the theology that you're to know and to believe that drives us, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So firstly then, Jesus is the driver in your work. Jesus is what drives you, what controls you, what determines which way you're going to go at the crosswords when it comes to your work. We're going to be looking at these last verses, verses 5 to 9 first, and then we're going to work our way back, no pun intended, to the family. Here... 
Paul lays out for us principles for the work life. And right away, we got to figure something out. we got to discover something. When he uses the word in verse 5, bond servants or slaves, as many translate it, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters. And the question immediately is raised in our minds, weren't Christians supposed to be abolishing slavery? I mean, aren't they supposed to oppose slavery? Why are we talking about working within it? Well, this you need to understand. That the slaves in the first century Roman Empire are not at all similar to the slaves in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. The differences are huge. The Yale Anchor Bible Dictionary points out several important matters for consideration. First, one, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race at all. had nothing to do with race. Second, it was not slavery for a lifetime. The vast majority of slaves were only slaves till they were about 30 years of age. Thirdly, here's a quote from the Anchor Bible Dictionary about slaves in the Roman Empire. See how it differs. It reads this way. Despite the legal distinction between owners and slaves, that is, slaves couldn't quit, they couldn't negotiate for their slavery, or um, their salary rather, or make demands, Still, persons in slavery did not constitute a different social or economic class. Slaves' social status, their lifestyle, their economic opportunities, even their education, <clears throat> were tied to the respective status of their respective masters. And they developed no recognizable consciousness of being a group or of suffering a common plight. And for this reason, any call for slaves of the ancient world to unite it would have fallen completely on deaf ears in ancient times. In fact, rather than look for work each day without certainty, many people in that day sold themselves into slavery to gain job security. So as soon as you hear that, you're thinking, man, that's not the slavery I'm familiar with. That's not the slavery I was thinking about. And you're right. It isn't. It wasn't great, but still, it wasn't the likes of which occurred in the Caribbean, in the New World in the 18th and 19th centuries, when Christian rose up against brutality and dehumanizing effects and violence. That was all part of that time period. And that's when Christian rose up appropriately to this form, that form of slavery that needed to be abolished, a different kind of slavery. And so having now a different understanding of what a slave was in ancient times in the Roman world compared to what it is in the 21st century in our minds, the ESV, the English Standard Version, which we use here, chose wisely to, to use the word bondservant, you might notice, rather than slave. A bondservant was one who voluntarily chose to bind themselves to serve their master for a particular period of time, to pay off a debt, to get out of poverty, and at the same time, they could own property, they could seek even social advancement. So having said all that, you can begin to think to yourself that this talks really more about bosses and employees, and that's what we're going to see this morning, that Paul uses this, and he uses two very important, says very, two very important things, <clears throat> if not radical things, about Jesus driving your work life. There are two things. First, work is all by divine calling. Second, work requires all your heart. 
Even though they are domestic servants here doing menial tasks, they are to serve wholeheartedly. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Did you see that? That they're serving the Lord. Now, if you and I went to a bookstore and we have found a bookshelf and the book was entitled Called to Serve the Lord, what would automatically come in your mind? You'd begin to think, well, this is probably a book about someone who had their job and left their job and went to go into full-time ministry or missions field somewhere around the world, right? And you and I would probably think like that. Do you know why? Because we don't have a biblical view of work. And most of us don't. And as soon as you and I begin to talk about being called to serve the Lord, the furthest thing from our minds would be that this was referring to farming or counting numbers or, account, or, or, or pushing a broom. And that's wrong. Because this is who Paul was speaking to. Domestic servants are people who did push brooms, who, who uh, counted numbers, who grew the crops. Paul is saying that the calling from God, and this is how you are to think as Christ followers, it's a calling. You've been called to serve God in your work, whatever that work is. Now, Elizabeth Elliot had a very helpful illustration of this. She was the, the, a wife of uh, Jim Elliot. Uh, she was a speaker and a lecturer for quite some time, and she explained this in one of her lectures. She said in so many words, what does God do in the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2? What do you see there? See, we see God bringing order out of chaos. This is what God does. The Spirit of God moves across the face of the waters, across the face of the deep, and then there was light. He brought order out of chaos. And then she says, think about your house. Wiping off the counters, dusting, mopping the floors. All those things I don't like to do very much. You might do it yourself. You might pay someone else to do it. But either way, if no one does it, you're going to die. Because when it comes to cleaning the house, she says, you are reflecting God. You are bringing order out of chaos. And that's what work does. And looking at it that way, there is no menial task. There is no low-paying job. There is, no, no, nothing, there is nothing that, that is not meaningful. All work is God's work. All work is God's way of bringing life and light and dignity to man. So the next time you or I see someone pushing a broom or picking up gum in the grocery store parking lot or pumping gas, you know, the simple, menial, low-paying work, don't you dare look down your nose at them. Treat them like furniture. Because if you don't treat them with dignity, you don't have a biblical view of work. And if you're here today and you feel as though your work is meaningless, it's useless, it's boring, then you maybe better find a better job, a different job, a job along the lines of your giftedness and your skills and your passions. Because God doesn't want you to think about your work as meaningless and boredom. Because all work is God's work. And God in his providence provides work for you and me that is meaningful. And when you understand that God is behind the work, and that it's meaningful because of him, then it's also not only meaningful, but it also motivates one. 
Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This means from the heart with joy and with zeal, with enthusiasm. What's he saying? He's saying you have an earthly boss, but he or she isn't the important one. You need to look beyond him or her to your heavenly boss. See, some of us have bosses and we work for companies that really deserve your hardest work. There's others of us that may look for work for bosses or companies that don't deserve your hardest work. And that's, therefore, some of you are doing your best and some of you really aren't doing your best. And that's because you don't have a biblical view of work. What Paul is saying is that work is really God's work. And if all work is God's work, then your real master is the one who stands above that earthly boss in heaven. You look to Jesus. You keep your eyes on Jesus. Because he deserves a good day's work every day, all day. He is your creator. He is your redeemer. He is what drives you. And if you look to him, he will always, you will always be productive. You will always work your hardest. You will always do your best if you look to Jesus. And then that will result in two things. First, it will be liberating. Your environment won't control you anymore. It's liberating. People can mess you up. It's like the pastor said, I love the ministry. It's people I can't stand. You know, that's a little pastoral joke there. But you have your dignity and you, have your, you, have, you know that you are going to put in a good day's work because you're working for the real boss. And if you make it your point to work for your real boss every day, when you do your work, people will notice. You'll stand out. You'll be different. Here's why. Because you're steady. You're honest. You're productive. You have integrity. And the word is going to get out. And you're just not working when people are watching. You're working when people aren't even watching. You're working all the time. and doing your best. And people are going to see that because it's different than everybody else. And the bosses are going to see it and they're going to want you to work for them. This was not the view of work in the Greco-Roman world. In the world of that day, people who did menial tasks were considered low-life, scum, and inconsequential. And this idea of work was totally different from the world of that day. Their lives were different. These people around, they were different than the people around them, and it will change you, and you will be different too. Be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by Him, be driven by Him. And here's the point. As soon as these people, these new Christians, worked out their theology and applied it to their lives, in their work life especially, they were very different from everybody else around them. And not only was that true of them in the marketplace and in their work, but it was also true of them in their homes, in their families. Very different. Jesus is the driver for your work. Secondly, Jesus is the driver for your family, for your home. He's what drives us at home and at work. Here God tells us something the children are to do and something the parents are to do. Either way, it's Jesus that drives us. 
Let's begin with verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now I want you to notice a couple things. First, children were there. They were there in the service in the church. They hear the, word, the reading of this Ephesian letter. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. They were there to hear it. And not only did they hear it, but Paul directs a portion of it right to them. They were present when it was read. And at Grace Point, we encouraged families to worship together. For children in the seventh grade and older to be here with their moms and dads, with family, to hear the teaching of the Word of God. And if they're younger than seventh grade and they're attentive, they're very welcome too. Because it is a good practice. It is a good way of help them learning how to hear the Word of God when it is taught from the Word. And encourage them to regularly practice worship in the commons. We would encourage that. You bring them. It'll help them for their future. Second, both the fathers and the mothers were rearing the children. Children obey your parents. Plural. The reference was to both of them. And then it says, fathers, don't provoke or exasperate your children to anger. Now, it could be that Paul says this because the father is the most responsible for what happens in the home. Or it could be that he knows that the father is more likely to be the one to provoke. And speaking as a father, it's true for me. And it's not true of Kim. I'm the one who will tease. I'm the one who will provoke, be sarcastic, uh, carry something a little bit too far, provoking my, my boys. It's true. Even this past week. To my shame, as I prepared this message, she had to say to me more than once, when I had said something that was a little bit too biting and sarcastic to one of my adult sons, she took me aside. That's a very smart thing to do. She took me aside and she said, Jay, there's that sarcasm again. I'm sure you don't have that problem. See, there's the sarcasm. So that's why I, I am. In ancient times, fathers owned their children. Children were literally their property. In the pagan world, the father's place was to ch take charge and teach the children who's boss. And Paul says that the very thing the parents are do is not to provoke fathers. Don't exasperate your children. The word means to infuriate and it was such a different approach. It's another, it's another way of saying, don't make your children perpetually angry. How do you make your child perpetually angry? Do you see any children, adults now, adult children who are perpetually angry? I do. How do they get that way? Number one might be abusive, being abusive to them. One commentator describes this uh, provoking, infuriating, perpetual anger this way. It means excessively severe discipline, reasonab unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, all forms of gross insensitivity to the child's needs and sensibilities. And any of those things will make your child perpetually angry. I knew a father who was a Christian who would unfortunately tease his children and provoke them 
just for the fun of it. Out of the blue, he would say to his child, you, go stand in the corner right now. Sternly, just like that. They hadn't done anything. They might have been playing with their brother, sister, their cousins. Just, you, go stand in the corner right now. And they would get up, and they'd go, they'd go to the corner, and the tears would begin to flow, and they'd begin to sob a little bit, and they'd just stand there. And then he'd turn around and say to me and others who were there, watch this. And he'd walk away for five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, leave the child in the corner. That was cruel. That was abusive. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand it at the time. I was younger myself, but it's, it's provoking. There's another way that you provoke a child to perpetual anger. Under discipline. If you're too afraid and too under-disciplined yourself personally to be consistent with your child, to afraid of their disapproval and not wanting to offend them, that you'll always be giving in to them and you'll be spoiling that child. And that is another perfect way to raise your child who's always angry. You know what it breeds? It breeds this entitlement that, that, that anyone who grows up with, a, with an incredible sense of entitlement is going to grow up very angry. Why? Because they're going to find out in the world that the world is not nearly as compliant with all their wishes as mommy and daddy were. And today in our world, we are raising a generation of entitled young adults who are very angry with the system. Over-discipline, under-discipline your child. And you'll make them perpetually angry. Don't do it. And the one thing that Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. That's, that's it. But instead, instead, bring them up, verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This was a complete departure from the culture of that day, the ancient world. It was unheard of. And actually, it's a departure in our culture for us today as well. See, in the ancient culture, the purpose for parenting was to discipline Show them who's boss. You own them. You make them shape up. You, you make them what you want them to be. You discipline them as you see fit. And it's your right as a parent to do that. In modern culture, it says the purpose of the family is to nurture your child, not to impose your views on them. Let them grow up and become whatever they decide they want to be. It's your place to nurture, to love them, the whatever they might become, that you love what they become, and that's it. Now there's a place for discipline. And there is a place for love. But to teach them what is right is the purpose. Values. Because if there's a right, then there's also a wrong way. So you bring them up, understanding the difference between right and wrong, according to the Lord and the principles of God's word. Helping them to be mature is the name of the game, to help them to grow up, making them self-sufficient, making them co-adults with you one day. And that'll happen when you teach them what is right. 
But it's not going to happen through just discipline alone or just nurturing and loving them alone. But it's in teaching them what is right. And kids, more than anything else, need a parent who says, this is what is right and this is what is wrong and this is how you're to live. And then models it and lives it themselves. And when they grow up, they might say, hey, yeah, I, only, I only accept 50% of what my mom and dad taught me. Well, I only accept 30%. I only believe 20% of what they said. But the point is, they've grown up understanding right from wrong. But if you just love them any way you want, let them be. Or on the other hand, you discipline and you crush them and you drive them trying to live your life out through them. No, what they need is they need to be brought up. Brought up to know the difference between right and wrong according to the Lord. I had a friend in my early teens, probably 13 or 14. He grew up without a father. His, his mother was uh, working all the time. She was never at home. He basically did anything and everything he wanted to do. And uh, boy, I wished I could be like Billy. Billy didn't have any parents nagging at him all the time. Billy didn't have any parents telling him what to do, giving him a hard time. He just rode his bike all over town, his little beagle dog following behind him. Everybody knew Billy in town. He was cool. He had all the freedom there was. And then one day my dad said something. Billy started to get into a little trouble. My dad said something I'll never forget. He said, Billy wasn't brought up. He just grew up. You, the parent, verse 4, are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that imperative is directed to you. You are the parents. You are the primary spiritual developers of your child. It's not the pastor. It's not the Sunday school teacher. It's not the small group leader of your child's Sunday school room. And it's not the youth director. And it is not the, the, the mentor or the staffer of the youth that meets in the small group with your child. It is you. You are the primary developer of the spiritual development of your child. They supplement, they reinforce, but you are the primary caretaker of your child's spiritual development. And one more thing. If you turn it around, it doesn't just say parents do this for your children, but also says children do this for your parents. And there are actually two categories of children being mentioned here. First, children obey your parents and the Lord. And the other is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Honor your father and mother. But there isn't one of the Ten Commandments that says obey your father and mother. You know why? Because you must always honor your father and mother. Always. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done or what they're like. But you certainly don't always have to obey your parents. Here's why. Because, because even good parents need to be stopped being obeyed because you've grown up. And even bad parents who tell you to do bad things, even as adults, you, they need to be disobeyed because they're telling you bad things. They're telling you what's wrong. They're not telling you what's right. But the one thing you must always do is honor them. And the honor principle is this, that you treat them with respect. 
you show them and you demonstrate to them respect what they are due, and if and if even if you'd rather not, you do it anyways. You don't have to obey them. You don't have to do everything they tell you to do, especially if they have bad opinions or bad ideas or wrong ideas. You, but you show them respect. You need to tell them what you do appreciate about them from time to time, but, but you have to forgive the rest. And if you don't forgive the rest, then you're not going to... Then, then they're not going to... And you're saying to yourself, they're not going to tell me what to do, or... I'm not going to listen to them anymore. I can't stand the way. If you're thinking that, you see, then you're still being controlled by them. You're still being driven by them rather than being controlled or driven by the Lord. When people read this about this proper attitude about children, about the proper attitude about parents, about the proper attitude about masters, the proper attitude about bondservants, it was completely different. It was totally against the grain of any of the lives that they lived around them. And you know what? In many cases, it's very different for us today, too. What's the key to not loving your parents too much or too little? To not being too dependent or upon them or not being too angry at them? What's the key to not overindulging your child because you're afraid of their disapproval, or, under dis- or over-disciplining your child and driving them away. It's Jesus. It's the control of Jesus in your life. It's not until you see Jesus and his love that he had for his Heavenly Father and the sins that were for- you forgiven by you having been brought into his family, knowing what price and what cost you were brought into that family of the Father's love, only then will his love then begin sloshing around and filling up your soul in large proportion. Will you then have the security to not over-control your child or uncontrol your child? Not to want your parents' approval too much or be too bitter that you never did get your parents' approval because now you have the Father's Approval in Jesus. Same thing at work. God's not only to drive you in the family, God's to drive you in work because Jesus is the one master who is Lord, who became a servant. Why did he become a servant? So, so you could be saved. So that your sins will be forgiven. And so now he becomes the one non-oppressive master in your life. If you know who you are in Christ, if Jesus is listed as the first main ingredient and fills you and drives you, then you work not for yourself or for your own good, but work becomes something you do to delight in the Lord and to serve the Lord and in so doing, serve others. You are no longer a slave. You've been liberated and you've become a bondservant voluntarily giving yourself in service to him. What drives you? What controls you? 
and the family at work, it ought to be Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us, Lord, having wrong opinions and ideas, falling in, Lord, to allow sin to control us and wreak havoc in our lives. We need Jesus. We need your perspective. We need your life everlasting. And if there be some here, Lord, who don't have it right now, I pray, Lord, that you would move in their hearts to draw them to yourself. That even now they might come to faith in you. Because you're speaking right to them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.